Morning. Thank you for joining us, uh, whether you're here or whether you're joining us online. If you don't know who I am, my name is Mike. I'm the Worship and Connections Pastor here. So um, I would say I would love to shake your hand and meet you later, but I don't think we can do that. But I'm um, just really excited to be bringing you guys God's word uh, today. I wanted to let you know that Brandon is okay. We didn't like demote him to cameraman or anything like that. Um, we actually intentionally set these three weeks aside uh, for Brandon to rest and kind of to recuperate and kind of catch up so that he can be firing on all cylinders as we move on uh, to the rest of 2020. I'm actually really excited about the next series that we're going to be starting next week. Uh, it's going to be called Disruption. So we're, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the Lord's Prayer and look um, how we can enlist in God's revolution through prayer. So really excited. Brandon will be back on this stage next week. Uh, so, um, so if this is your first time joining us, and um, I'm really sorry for what you're about to hear. No, I'm just <laughs> Because I, uh, I don't really do public speaking, but I'm really excited uh, just to be here. So let me ask you guys a question. How has your life changed since you heard those famous or maybe now infamous words, COVID-19? How has your life changed? If you're like most people, it's probably changed quite a bit. Uh, maybe some not so much. But let's take a journey back to before COVID-19. Like, so... Let's put a, a date on it of January of 2020. So we were just starting to hear some whispers of this virus that was coming and it was going to change everything. It was going to be this virus that just completely changed, you know, flipped our world upside down. And, you know, it was going to be bigger than the swine flu. It was going to be something different than, than the bird flu or maybe if there's a dog flu, I don't know. Um, but it was going to be something completely, completely different that would change our world. And so if you're like me, you probably heard that. Your eyes kind of glazed over a little bit, and you're like, yeah, right. Like, that's not going to happen. We're, I've heard this before, been down this road, dude. I'm, I'm, no. Now that I think about it, I think about how naive and innocent I must have been back then to think that this wouldn't happen. Because shortly after that, we started seeing cases here in the U.S., and things started shutting down. And not just like some of the things, like all the things started shutting down. Life as we had known it had officially been canceled. So you might not know this, but before I came on staff here, I never had the privilege of doing full-time ministry. I'd only been able to do it part-time because I have a bunch of kids and they're really expensive. So if you would have told me less than a year into my first full-time ministry that I would be facing a worldwide pandemic, I might have done one of two things. I would have probably would have kicked you out of my office or I would have rolled my eyes and said, listen, I just started my first full-time ministry. I don't have time for a pandemic. I don't have time. I have too many things to do. You see, I probably would have just laughed, rolled my eyes, and gone on. I have too many things to do. I have too many ministries I need to get, get in check. I, I have too many names to remember, which I'm still working on. So I just don't have time for that. And no matter how much I could have said that, no matter how much I could have said, I don't have time for a pandemic, just was, hold on, can we, can we wait three years for that to happen? I could have said that till I was blue in the face, but it still would have happened when it happened. And now that we're a few months in, I'm starting to have some time to reflect on that. And the more and more I think about it, the more I kind of think that maybe this virus wasn't so much of a, like a distraction or a disruption. Maybe, just maybe, this, Virus was a divine opportunity for us 
to kind of slow down, to reassess, to look into our own lives and how busy they had become. I mean, it's no doubt that the virus did something. It changed our world. I mean, and everything was shut down, right? I think we can all agree on that. But let's, let's take a journey back. Let's think back, all right, pre-COVID, pre-everything, all right? So when you went to Walmart, all you had to remember was your wallet. Don't lose your kids. I'm not speaking from personal experience. Uh, you didn't have to question whether you had to wear a mask or not. You didn't have to question whether you're going to go see your grandparents because you're afraid you're going to get them sick. You didn't have to cancel that, that birthday party or adjust it, that wedding, that anniversary, that said family gathering. But the more and more I think about it, the more and more I think that maybe this disruption into our normal lives, I'll say it again, was a divine opportunity. It's become this divine opportunity for us to embrace the challenges that have been given to us, to embrace everything that we are dealing with. Maybe instead of avoiding some of these challenges, maybe instead of, I don't know, say, buying into the next conspiracy theory that you see on Facebook, what if we looked at this divine opportunity the way that Jesus looked at it? What if we look at it through his eyes? You see, Jesus was the ultimate disruptor. So what Jesus would do is he would go into a town, and he would probably have his followers, depending on what what time of his ministry he was in. And if something was going on in that town that wasn't jiving with him, that's something that wasn't fitting, you better believe that Jesus was going to come and bring it to light and say, hey, that's not right. I mean, he even did it to the point of flipping tables. So I think Jesus was about disrupting, but he was about disrupting in a good way. We see this happening all throughout the Gospels. All throughout the Gospels. So, today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 30. Um, So if you guys have your Bibles or your smartphones or whatever you have, you can open those up and turn to there. We're not going to read it just yet, so I'm going to give you some time to flip there. But allow me to set the scene of what's going on here. So Jesus is in a town, he's teaching, he's most likely in a synagogue or somebody's house, and at this point, people were still trying to figure him out, still trying to figure out who this this guy from Nazareth is, and how did he become so wise, and how did he become, you know, how did he gain such a a following? People were still trying to figure him out, because back in the first century, like the Jews had a running joke that nothing good came from Nazareth. So when this guy from Nazareth comes on the scene, and he has this huge following, and he's so wise, they're like, what is going on? You see, to the Pharisees and to the, these so-called experts of the law, Jesus was disrupting their way of life. He was throwing a giant monkey wrench into their plans of, hey, you have to follow the law in order to get to heaven. You have to do all these good things. You have to check all your boxes to get to heaven. And Jesus was saying, my grace is enough. God's grace is enough for you. So they're sitting there going like, hold on a second. That's not right. You know, if, if a certain circumstance in your life had caused you to, to not live according to law, if you weren't able to get to the synagogue to, to sacrifice that pigeon or whatever it was, then you must be living outside of God's law. The God must not be loving you because you're not following his law. See, just before verse 30, in verses 25 through 29, we see this man, a man of the law, so this guy knows the law, and he's trying to test Jesus' wisdom. So, he asks him a really simple question, right? 
what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Just a small question, Jesus. Can you answer it for me? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I imagine Jesus kind of sits back and goes, well, you're so smart. Why don't you tell me? So his response, this man of the law, his response was the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's the standard. That's the golden rule. So Jesus congratulates the man on his superb answer. And he looks at him and he says, do this and you will live. Now I had a feeling, or I have a feeling that this man of the law didn't like the fact that this guy from Nazareth had a one-up on him. Because he tries to justify himself next. And I think that's something that we all kind of do in our own lives when we are, when something happens, when we are seen as doing something wrong, we try to justify it. We try to justify it, the why. I do it all the time. Example at home, when my wife tells me to take out the trash or change the diaper. Ah, babe, you know, I just it's been a long week. I'm just really tired. You're so good at changing diapers. Why don't you do it? That gets me on the couch. But this man tries to justify himself, and I think we all can kind of put ourselves in the shoes of this man of the law and, and see what he's trying to do here. So his response to that is, and who is my neighbor? And I like to imagine that he probably was something along the lines of like, and who is my neighbor? Jesus, what do you tell me? And who is my neighbor? Like really snarky like that? Like, ugh. It really pains me to say it like that too. Now this is usually the part in scripture where when you're reading it, or where if you were there, you'd want to kind of sit back, maybe grab your basket of popcorn, or maybe a basket of figs, if you're in the first century as a Jew. And you want to sit there, and you want to watch what Jesus is about to do, because it's about to get entertaining. So this is where we jump into Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 30. So if you guys are there, uh, we're going to read there. So starting in verse 30, it says this. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Imagine this is the part where Jesus would kind of have the dramatic pause, kind of scan the crowd. And then he would look at him and he'd say, Which... Of these three, do you think proved to be a good neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Man of the law replies, the one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. Go and do the same. So Jesus answers him with a good old-fashioned parable. That's what Jesus liked to do. That's how he taught. And you see, the first century Jews, this story started out a lot how most, you know, it's kind of one of the stories that, they would know, except the three characters or the characters that were going down the road would have been completely different. At least the last one would have been. So you would have had your priest, 
you would have had your Levite, and then you would have had your Pharisee. And the Pharisee would have been the knight in shining armor riding on that white horse that would be coming to save the day. But as we read it, it's not the case. Third character is the Samaritan. And so let me put kind of a perspective on the Samaritan. So Jesus, when he put a Samaritan into the story, it was really disrupting what they had known as a first century Jew. So as a first century Jew, you were taught to hate Samaritans from the time that you were born. They were the, the people that got themselves mixed up with the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were outside the law. It would be kind of like how some people still view interracial marriage. It would be like, oh, you got yourself mixed up in the wrong crowd, so I'm not going to talk to you. You're not even worthy to look at me. That's how a first century Jew would have seen a Samaritan. Pretty harsh. All right, so let's put it into modern day context. It would have been saying something like this. A Catholic priest, a Baptist pastor, and an atheist walk into a church. Whoa. It would have been saying, all right, let's, let's take it back to 9-11. It would be saying a priest, a pastor, and a Muslim are walking down a road, and the Muslim is the one who saves the day. That's not supposed to happen. Jesus, it's a Pharisee, right? It's not a Samaritan. It's a Pharisee. It's, I can spell it for you. It's P H A. So on and so forth. Like, people would have looked at this as being extremely disruptive because a Samaritan doesn't even have the right to be in the presence of a priest, let alone a Jew. But as Jesus did, mostly throughout his ministry, as Jesus took what our normal was, what we thought to be normal, and he flipped the narrative. He changed the narrative. So let's break down this narrative, right? So that Jesus is talking about the Good Samaritan story. There's, so there's really five characters in this story. If you want to count the robbers, there's probably a little bit more. I imagine there wasn't just one robber. So you have the man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. You have the three robbers, or well, maybe three. We'll call them three. Uh, you have the priest, you have the Levite, and then you have that Samaritan. So let's begin with the first two. It's the man traveling down the road and the robbers. So the robbers leave him for dead. They take all his money, all his possessions, and they go on their merry way. And see, another note here is back in the first century, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous. It was known as, actually they called it the way of blood because there all the blood that robbers had spilled robbing people on this road. It'd be kind of like you going to that, you know, maybe you're out of town and you're going, you get lost into a neighborhood that you look around and you're like, I better make sure my doors are locked. It'd be like going through a, a neighborhood like that. So instantly what Jesus does is he gathers our attention with the drama of knowing that, ooh, they're on a dangerous road. I, I mean, I probably would not go down that road by myself. That guy probably deserved to get robbed. So as this man's laying there half dead, we see the other two characters briefly enter and exit the story. Right? We see the, the priest and the Levite. And just because their, their placement in the story is is very brief. It doesn't mean that it's any less significant. So having the knowledge that they were walking down a road that was dangerous, they probably opted the safe route and said, I better not waste any time. I better keep going. But they didn't just say that. They didn't just continue down the road. They saw him and they took a step over the side of the road and then they kept going. Maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they had a really important appointment to get to. 
Maybe they got a new robe and they didn't want to get blood on it. Maybe they were worried that if they stopped and helped this man, that the robbers were just waiting for somebody else to come along and they could ambush him. I'm a really important person. I can't get ambushed today. All reasons may be valid. Maybe not the robe one. But all very valid reasons. But they're all reasons that focus inward. What could happen to me if I do this? What could happen to me if I stopped and helped this man? So what do they do? They go out of their way to avoid this man. Then we see the Samaritan walking by. And what does he do? Well, he goes straight for this guy. He doesn't stop. He stops. He gets the bandages. He wound, He picks up all the stuff. He heals him, or he tries to heal him at least. He puts him on his own animal, so which means that he probably had to walk if he was already, if he's riding that animal. He takes him to an inn. He lays him down. He lets him rest and recuperate. And, but he can't stay, so what does he do? He, he goes to the innkeeper and says, hey, here's some money. Uh, hopefully that's enough to cover everything. If it's not, then I'll pay you for whatever extra when I get back on. But take care of him. So what we see is that this Samaritan, this, this person who had no right to even be in the presence of a Jew or a priest or anything, going out of his way, having compassion on this very person and taking care of him. Isn't that just such a clear picture of what Jesus did for us? I think it is. I mean, Jesus was the son of God. He had the power to heal lepers, to help the blind see, to help the lame to walk. He was the son of God. But Jesus was also human. You know, he became flesh and dwelt among us. So he is also human. So he felt like we feel. He could, he could get a cut. He could get a bruise. He could get a scrape. I imagine being a carpenter, he probably got a splinter or two occasionally. And having the knowledge of that, what do we see him doing in the garden? So he knew that in order for us to be with the Father, that he would have to suffer a horrible and painful death. But when we see him in the garden in the night that he's getting arrested, he's praying. Well, first he's praying like, hey, God, I would prefer to not die on a cross. That would be great. And that's usually where our prayer would stop. But Jesus continues. And he says, but God, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus got something that I think we're still struggling with 2,000 years later. Is that love is often the harder choice, but it's always the right choice. Love is always the right choice. See, Jesus knew it had to be done. And his ultimate display of love on that cross is why we can now have the peace and the knowledge of actually knowing what love looks like. Now, I heard a quote the other day that's really stuck with me since. It says this, Christianity is solving the problems we didn't cause. Christianity is solving the problems that we didn't cause. When I look at our current situation, when I look at what we're going through now, as not just as a community, but as a world, I've never found it to be more true. If somebody would ask me, hey, what, is it, what does it look like to be a Christian? I would say something along the lines of Christianity is solving the problems we didn't cause. I mean, could you imagine if we lived in a world where instead of focusing on our own problems and our own displeasures in our lives, that we could look to our neighbors and their problems 
and their needs and help them? I mean, imagine if we lived in a world where we set aside our personal differences, which is actually something if you guys see that, you see that on screen pretty much every week. If we could set aside our personal differences and choose to love that person that's different than me, choose to love that person that looks different than me, choose to love that person that kind of smells a little funny, choose to love that person that votes differently than me. How different would our lives be? How much better could our world be if we would stop focusing so much on me, me, myself, and I, and started focusing on their needs? I mean, could you imagine how disruptive we could be as a society? And I mean disruptive in a good way. If we focused on this one thing, that Christianity is solving the problems that we didn't cause. I think we could make a pretty big impact. So you're probably th- sitting there and thinking to yourself, okay, Mike, I've heard this, I've heard this before, I've heard the story, I've been in church a couple of times, I've heard the Good Samaritan story, and you know, it always, okay, but how do I actually take what you're telling me today and go out into the world and practically apply it to my life? How do I actually put this into practice? Well, I'm glad you asked. For me, Jesus' last words that he spoke on this earth before he ascended to the right hand of the Father is a pretty good place to start. So we're going to be reading in Matthew 28. You guys don't have to flip there. It's really quick. It'll be up there on the screen. But I'll start in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything, everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. That's what Jesus told us to do. And I'm sure you've heard it at least once or twice from this stage. So the question with the Great Commission and the story of the Good Samaritan is what does it all boil down to? What what does this actually look like? And to me, this is what it looks like. Jesus' last command should be our first priority. The last thing that Jesus told us on this earth before he ascended to the right hand of the Father should be our first priority. So when you're out walking in your neighborhood, or you're at work, or you're at your kid's ball game, when you're at the grocery store, Jesus' last command should be our first priority. And now, so the command I'm talking about is go, therefore, and make disciples. That's, that's the first thing right there. So discipleship is just sort of a fancy word that churches have used to overcomplicate a very simple thing. And there's, there's probably still some churches that are trying to complicate this. But discipleship is as simple as this. It's as simple as taking a relationship that you have or are about to have and injecting Jesus into that relationship. 
It doesn't have to be difficult. I mean, it could be, it could be that coworker that's struggling with their marriage. And by introducing them to the hope of Jesus, you give hope to their marriage that it won't fail. It could be that neighbor that you see every day as you're walking in from your car from work. Hey, neighbor, how's it going? How's your kids? Hey, your dog got in my yard again. Maybe instead of having the normal conversation running through the motions, what if we took that conversation and injected Jesus into it? You know, I think it might change the way that they thought. It might change the way that they look at you. It could negatively affect that. But what if it positively affected that? Maybe, maybe just what they need to hear in that time or in this time, like the COVID time, where we're being told the way that we love our neighbors is through distancing from them, through isolating ourselves, through not talking to them, don't even look at them. Maybe giving them the hope of Jesus will help them get through this season. You see, Jesus was all about relationships. That's why he was so disruptive back in the first century. It's because they had been given this law from God. And what did man do? Well, 10 wasn't enough. So we needed more laws. We needed more laws. We needed more laws. Until the point where it became constraining to follow God. And we see it in the Old Testament time and time again. They fell away from God. They fell away from God. But God knew there was a better way. And that was Jesus. And when Jesus started preaching this message of grace, it was disruptive. See, the whole point was to be in relationship with one another. The whole point was love, that our God loved us so much, he loved his people so much that he wanted to give them a set of laws and some rules that would set them up on a firm foundation so that they could thrive as a people. They lost sight of that. And Jesus came to disrupt that And show us what love really was. Jesus got that love was the harder choice. But it was always the right choice. So let me leave you here with a little homework. Sorry for the people who hate school. I want you to re-examine all the relationships in your life right now. Re-examine all of them. And I want you to find one of those relationships and inject Jesus into it. Now this will be preferably somebody that you would not have that kind of a conversation with. And sure, it might be uncomfortable, but I think God grows us the most through our uncomfortableness. I know he's grown me the most through my uncomfortableness. Thanks. So what I want you to do is to re-examine all the relationships in your life and pick one. Now, I will put this disclaimer because we are in the COVID era. If you're not socially distanced with that person, make sure you do that because I don't need an email saying, Mike, I got sick because you told me to be a disciple. The point is this, guys. You could change somebody's life this week just by having a simple conversation about Jesus. Discipleship, it doesn't have to be difficult. It just has to lead people to Jesus. Would you guys stand? We're, we're going to pray. And the worship team is going to come out and sing one last song. Father, we are so grateful for your, for your son, Jesus. We are so grateful that 
you brought him you brought him here to earth to show us what love was you brought him here father because you knew we needed him he bridged that chasm between you and us when he paid that ultimate sacrifice on the cross father I pray that this week as we go on with our daily busy lives that that we can find that one con- one person, that one conversation that we need to have, that we're able to get out of our comfort zone this week for you because you are worth it. You're worthy of that. You are worthy of everything that we give you, Father. I pray if we don't have one of those relationships right now, that, that we can, I pray that, that you send the person into our lives this week that would allow us to get out of our comfort zone, that would allow us to talk about you because you are worth being talked about we are so grateful for all you do for us help us to live like it this week we pray this in Jesus name Amen